So a few years ago, there was a commercial that uh, really burned, um, burned its image into, into my memory, but not really for good reason. Uh, some of you perhaps remember it as well. It was a, uh, a boy and, and his sister, and um, the kid gets this toy that clearly he was really, really wanting. And uh, his reaction is, well, I can't describe, I'm going to try and do it. And if you think it's annoying for me to do it, then just remember the commercial. He goes, yes, 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 yes. Do you remember that one under the tree? Do you remember that one? Yeah. Ugh. It's unpleasant. Yelling, bellowing. And literally when I heard it one time, I, I heard it and didn't see it. And I wondered, who the hell turned on Braveheart in the other room, you know? It's like Mel Gibson, angry Mel Gibson slaying his enemies, you know? It's, it's just kind of a grubby commercial is what I recall. You know, it's this, it's this sense that because he got this object... Everything's wonderful. And actually, the voiceover in it says that we as adults should aspire to that. I think that's what troubled me the most in that commercial. It's not just a celebration of materialism that somehow objects make us truly happy. There's no gratitude in it. There's no thanking mom or dad or even Santa. Just this unbridled, almost feral shouting. It's like wolf boy gets his wolf toy. You know, I mean, it's just, it's strange. But actually what was most remarkable about it, what I remember, is that there's no sense of surprise, no sense of receiving a gift, really receiving a gift, a feeling of being astonished of that gift under the tree or whatever we might find it. And so more than repulsed by it, I was saddened by this commercial because spiritually in terms of what this season is really all about, it completely missed the mark. This is a season of the potential for sacred surprise, where it is permissible to expect the unexpected and even expect that there will be a glorious overturning of the things we might expect. That's the meaning of the miracles, the numerous miracles, the myth this time of year. There is the Hanukkah story where the ancient Israelites get back their temple, the holy of the holy to them from the occupying Assyrian empire. And that light burns even though there's no oil left. Somehow it burns for eight days and eight nights. Christmas is even more explicit in terms of these new, revealed, unexpected surprises. The beginning of John's gospel says very, very clearly, very declarative fashion, nothing, nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. Nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. And then... Lo and behold, the wise and wonderful rabbi and teacher rises up from the backwater of the Galilee. And that's what the Galilee was in ancient Israel. It was a place you didn't want to be from. It's a place you didn't want to go to. Advent, the season on the Christian calendar, at its base is really all about maintaining an open, waiting, receptive kind of being. What some traditions call beginner's mind. That sense of truly being receptive to what life has to offer us. Because beyond the story and the mythology of these traditions, this is the clear meaning of this time of the year. That there are endings yet to be written, and these endings will confound us, surprise us, delight us, and even potentially, yes, liberate us, free us. In our tradition, liberal religious tradition, where wisdom is not long ago and far away, but here and now, where revelation is unsealed, we should certainly expect to be surprised. 
Now, perhaps this runs counter to how you are feeling at this point in your life, at this season in your life. Perhaps you feel that the year is old or the story is played out and that the end or the upcoming thing is so completely obvious that you know exactly what is going to happen next. Deep down in your bones, you know that nothing is going to change. And then, as the season invites us to see, perhaps something happens. A healthy child is born, a light that you expected to, metaphorical or real, doesn't go out. Love is rekindled. Perhaps you know at your deepest level of your being that you are not alone. This time of the year invites us to see ourselves anew, to experience what they call paradigm shifts, a shift in consciousness of what we can really expect from this life. This time of the year imagines us to invite and to know a different ending. And even if that new ending is not clear yet, at least open ourselves up to the capacity for surprise. One of my favorite teachers, psychological teachers, a guy named Martin Seligman, some of you might know, he teaches at UPenn, and he's sort of at the forefront, the forerunner of what they call uh, the psychology of happiness, not just the psychology of taking us from absolutely can't get off the floor depressed to sort of baseline, borderline miserable, but the kind of understanding of what it takes for us really to thrive as human beings. And being one himself, and to be honest, being a little bit this myself as well, sort of move myself off this base, but I can still recognize it within myself. He talks about the pessimistic mindset. The pessimistic mindset he describes as permanent, global, and pervasive. When you are pessimistic, you think in these absolute totalizing categories, permanent, global, and pervasive. Nothing will ever change, and what will not change is also something you don't like in your life or something even worse that you don't like about yourself. What Martin Seligman encourages us to do when we find ourselves spinning and spinning and spinning around in this kind of mindset is to recognize that we are playing out in our heads a particular script that may have no correlation to reality whatsoever. And so he encourages us, much as many spiritual practices encourage us to do, is to observe and understand the nature of the way our minds work and generate these thoughts, this pessimism. Perhaps to find within ourselves those moments, like it says in the gospel I just shared, nothing ever good comes of Nazareth. It's much more painful when we can say, and sometimes we do say about ourselves, nothing ever good comes from here. Or nothing ever good comes from here. To be able to start to unpack that feeling when we feel overwhelmed by negativity or sadness or grief or anger or loss. At this point, when I find myself in one of these places, I like to think of what I call the director's cut practice. Director's cut is this. You all know Fatal Attraction? You remember Fatal Attraction? You all know the ending or the, the theatrical release ending the Fatal Attraction. Michael Douglas, you know, protects his family. You know, he was wrong, but Glenn Close, she was really insane and wrong. And, you know, the way we're supposed to read that is she gets what's coming to her because, you know, she boiled a bunny. And how horrible is it to, you know, boil a pet bunny? I mean, I really feel that. I have pet rabbits, you know. But, but that's not how the movie was supposed to end. I think its original ending was better. The original ending, but audiences didn't like it when they test marketed this. The original ending is that after Glenn Close has been discarded, just sort of thrown away by Michael Douglas's character, she kills herself, implicating him with his fingerprints on the knife. You're led to believe that he's going to pay. The reason I like the idea of the director's cut practice is that as we see in Fatal Attraction... What we think of the ending wasn't really the ending. 
It's just one particular ending among many endings that may have been. So perhaps if you feel that your life is all scripted out and the ending is just obvious and what has been is what is going to be, think about what the director's cut of your life might be. That could be an alternate ending. That might be a different edit. And allow yourself, if you can, to give yourself to this potential kind of hope, even if it feels jarring, this surprise. It reminds me of probably one of the greatest single essays I have read in my life. It's by one of my favorite thinkers, a guy named Andrew Sullivan, who some of you might know, great blogger. I like him because he is the living embodiment of Walt Whitman's great question that he asked himself. He said, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. The reason I like Andrew Sullivan so much is not always because I agree with him. I don't. Often I disagree with him. But he is gay, Catholic, libertarian Tory who was never really part of the Republican Party because he doesn't agree with it, also living with HIV disease and continues to sort of keep himself within the Catholic Church, but not quite. He contains multitudes, and in fact, all of us do. None of us is an easy pattern to figure out. In 1996, he wrote a beautiful piece, thoughtful, searching, real, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine called When Plagues End. See, in the late 80s, the early 90s, Andrew Sullivan made public that he had HIV disease, that he was developing AIDS, and he thought he would be dead, as so many of his beloved friends were, by the end of the decade. And then if some of you remember the medical science, what happened at this point in the mid-90s, there got to be developed what they call the triple cocktail, that extended life in miraculous, unbelievable ways for people living with AIDS and HIV. Now, Sullivan acknowledges this. Of course, if you can afford the drugs, that could send your life, and not everyone can. But for those thousands of people, can those hundreds of thousands of people worldwide who saw their lives extended from a death sentence to a life sentence, just living with HIV, but not dying from it, not quickly at least. One of the things that Sullivan identified in his essay, When Plagues End, is that this new ending was wonderful and it was terrifying. He was sure that his life was going to come to a close. He was sure that that script was going to play itself out as it had for so many of his friends who had died really horrible ways. For him, he felt what a professor of mine did in seminary, that it was no longer the fear of non-being that gripped him. It was the anxiety of being alive, the anxiety of hope. The anxiety of once again having a life to which he felt responsible and had to live out perhaps with many years in front of him. There was almost a kind of security in his death sentence when he felt it that he had to let go of. Similar to one of my favorite teachers, the Quaker teacher Parker Palmer, in writing about a metaphorical and also real winter of his own soul. He talked about when he was extremely depressed in his midlife. And he reflected back on that winter, that dark night of his soul. He almost felt, and he was almost a little ashamed to admit it, that he liked the hopelessness. Because it required nothing out of him at all. It required nothing out of him at all to have no hope whatsoever and no desire to rejoin life. But when he started to feel better, started to get himself back, he himself too felt that anxiety 
of being alive, that something was at stake once again. See, sometimes we tend to equate security with comfort, but security can be an absolutely dreadful thing. Security or only questing for security or comfort in our lives can be like we put ourselves in our own police state. We lock ourselves down and we lock ourselves off and we admit that nothing will ever change, just our own internalized big brother. So envisioning a new hope, imagining a different ending from the one that we were so sure of, this can make us incredibly vulnerable. I think that this kind of vulnerability is a gift from the Spirit because it invites us to move beyond what we know and what we can control and imagines us, invites us to go to that place in which imagination is much more important than our knowledge or our power. It is not a mistake that these themes are so much a part of these winter holidays that we now observe and celebrate and lift up because so many of these things arrive in the dark as the year is about to turn. So the deepest challenge, I think, of this time of the year, whatever tradition from which you come, whatever traditions you celebrate now, the challenge of this time of the year is this. Trust the dark. Do not rush prematurely towards the light. Trust the dark. That, to me, has always been the deepest meaning of Advent, this willingness to wait with open mind, open heart, open spirit, to wait for that new ending or that transformation and not to fear the dark of our unknowing. See, we, sometimes we think that darkness only conceals and hides, but darkness can just as easily reveal to us something that we need to see. It's kind of like when I moved into the apartment that my wife and I share. We moved in in the middle of the summertime, and when we looked out our back window, all we saw was this beautiful canopy of green trees everywhere. And we didn't see any life down below. We thought, okay, we live next to a forest. That's pretty cool. And then fall came around. The trees started to fall off the leaves. And then winter came around. And we saw what we could not see when there was nothing but green. We saw a whole neighborhood that existed underneath that canopy. And especially at this time of the year, when everyone has the little twinkling winter lights up, near their house, or just the street lights near their house. We see that there is all this life down there that we could not perceive when it was just all that green and all that flourishing. See, sometimes, and this is the paradox of this time of the year, less, sometimes less really is more. What is less doesn't have to be scarce, but it can be sparse. But sparseness really can be abundant if that sparseness allows us to see something that we wouldn't have seen otherwise, if it allows us, that sparseness, to see something there that may be in the midst of summer, not in the midst of the dark night of the soul, we think, okay, it's all green and it's growing, it's beautiful all the time. But sometimes when things are sparse, revelation will reveal itself to us in a way we cannot see when there's just so much around us. I like the way Warren Buffett put it in talking about this economy-related point. He said, Sometimes you can only tell who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. <laughs> it's the same point. You know, sometimes we're the ones who's swimming naked in the midst of our own lives, economically or not. Because then sometimes we get to see we have been wearing emperor's new clothes, thinking we are all jazzed up. But in fact, 
not really giving ourselves a full dress of the Spirit. I love this season because we perceive most clearly our dreams and we see most clearly our stars only in the dark. We can't see them when it's too bright. One of the most famous stories of this time of the year. I'm going to ask you to see this, try and see this, not with Fraser Crane playing the actor, but try and, try and see this for a second, for the first time. One of the most famous stories of this time of year is all about the gospel, the good news, if you will, of seeing a different ending for our lives. This is Ebenezer Scrooge. Visited at the darkest night and necessarily so, for his soul. He would not, without that terrifying vision of the ending that could have been, be able to envision a new ending for his life. And so he's finally able to make that choice of a different ending. This is, in the deepest way, a Christmas carol, a redemption story. Because think about it, just could be an old man washed up, writing out his days in miserly misery, and yet even at his advanced age, was given a chance to begin again. Begin in that dark night of the soul with the vision that his ending didn't have to be. Began with the hope of a different ending and started that hope right there, right then, in the scene that comes after this. And of course, these these words come from Dickens, who through the mouth of the child articulated the greatest universalist theology there is, and really the sum of it. Tiny Tim, what do you say? God bless us, everyone. He said that a little bit more, a little more energy than the 9 a.m. folks did, I think. They, everyone knows who Tiny Tim is. God bless us, everyone. Dickens, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, he was a Unitarian. He belonged to, at the time, what was called the Broad Church Movement which disagreed with both the doctrinal rigor or the quest for purity of the Anglican church of his time, the high church as they called it, or the low church of the evangelical movement that was just starting to ramp up in the 1840s in England. But at his deepest level, Dickens belonged to our tradition, not because of ecclesiology and not because of the doctrine of a church, because he didn't think God would be found because of any doctrine he located his relationship to God in a conversion. Not to doctrine, but a conversion to kindness and a conversion to generosity. He believed in the possibility of the turning of our hearts, an invitation to the kind of love that allows us to begin again and to know that there could be, among many opportunities, a different ending for us. Another UU Over 150 years later, Robert Fulgham, you all know him, the kindergarten book. He was trying to identify with a rabbi friend of his once what the most important spiritual word from their traditions were. And they identified this one. I forget what the Hebrew is, but the English translation is one we know well. The most important spiritual word is maybe. Maybe. The world of possibility that that opens up because there is only real possibility when it's not all scripted out and the ending is not obvious. 
Sometimes we all feel, and perhaps you do feel this way today, that we just look back and look around at the things that we could have done, the things that we should have done, the grief that still exists in our hearts, those hurts, those resentments, those pains that we cannot let go of, and we think what was is what is and what will be. I think of these words by Greenleaf Whittier. For all the sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest of these, what might have been. But the gift of this season, I think, invites all of us to do, is not just to look back, but to look at here and now, and to also gaze forward. So I've changed these words a little bit. I hope the poet wouldn't disagree with me, but it's not like he can tell me so. For all glad words of tongue and heart, the gladdest of these, you still can start. For all glad words of tongue and heart, the gladdest of these, you still can start. We all still can start, perhaps by envisioning a new yet-to-be ending, different from the one that we were sure was going to happen to us, and we can do this I tell you this absolutely, no matter how much time is left us. This past week, I was given the painful blessing, less painful for me than it was for them, of spending time in the presence of someone who has a terminal illness. They could be here until next week. They could be here until next month, hopefully, because this is the kind of person that we want to keep in life with us as long as we can. Hopefully there's months more, but it's terminal and there's no way around that. And of course, where there is deep love in this life, there is always so much pain in that letting go because this is the kind of person who loves deeply and is beloved deeply. Especially because this person has kids. And I know for all of you who are parents, that's the the saddest thing, that, that sense of parting from your children. And so that impending passageway into the next, the word that they use, I love it, I think it's from Dr. Shivago or something like that, it's from Pasternak, is the great immensity. I just love that word for whatever comes next, the great immensity. So this impending passageway hurts, of course, and she worries about those she will leave behind. But one day she was telling me she just saw it. She just saw an ending different from the one that she might have envisioned before. She saw her family, and she knew. She knew deep down with the deepest part of ourself that can know that there will be pain and there will be sorrow. But in the end, they will be okay. They will be all right. Even without her, And of course, because they are hers. She knew that and could envision that different ending. It does not matter where we are in this life. It does not matter how old you are. It does not matter how sick you are. It does not matter how young you are. Nothing that we ever start in earnest is ever commenced too late. It is never too late to experience a different sense of what the ending may be because it's not written yet. It is not over. Even if we think one thing is over, chances are something else will come and take its place. And that will be 
the new ending. And a new ending after that. And a new ending after that. And a new ending after that. Succession and succession and succession. If, if we open ourselves up to the potential for sacred surprise. And if we can imagine it. So yes, the days are darkening. And the year is turning. But perhaps. Maybe. Maybe. Our hearts are invited to open as well. I would invite you all to say yes. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of that sacred surprise, being beyond measure, God beyond words. May we build and even more may we open within our lives that capacity of envisioning. Of knowing that what was and what is, it may not be. May we feel that spark, because at this season, that's all we need. That spark within the dark that allows us, allows us to know that the story of our lives is not yet written. It is not over. Revelation is unsealed as our tradition promises us. But may we take that deeper than concept or thought. May we live the truth and the reality, that revelation of which we are a part and give birth to revelation every day. That we may inscribe and inscribe and reinscribe ourselves in that larger book of life. May we trust the dark, not fear it, and know that we are not alone there. Amen.